0: Awesome. Well, hi everybody. Welcome. I'm gonna add my welcome to Kelly's. Um, my name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I'm in New York and um really glad to be here. Um, especially uh, you know, after this holiday weekend, I think it's I never ever want to take for granted what an incredible gift I was sharing with somebody today that um you know it'll be 10 years that I'm abstinent. Um Entirely absent in February. And so this is my ninth year of um of easy Thanksgivings, of like quiet food-wise Thanksgivings. Um, and uh and it's a it's a miracle, it's just a miracle. Um, so I want to call that attention and you know, for anybody that's here that did not experience. The holiday that way, whether they were white knuckling it, maybe binging, um, you know, here with a resolution, um, it is possible that you can have holiday after holiday after holiday of peace and freedom, um, focusing in on the people and not the food. So um, with that, uh, tonight we're gonna talk about step four. And um, Step four is we need a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And we're gonna kind of go mostly from the big book, but we'll be in the AA 12 and 12 as well. So you kind of wanna have a couple of your books handy. Um, On page 64 in the big book, it says, though our decision was a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and to be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. Our liquor was but a symptom. So we had to get down to causes and conditions. So step four comes right after step three, where we make this decision, right? That we're gonna turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand him. And that decision is vital, it's crucial. It's an important turning point. And then we get to step four which is what is in the way of me knowing God's will and being able to live in agreement with God's will? What are the obstacles in that, in that pathway? And that's what step four is about. Um, you know, and we find out that food is, is a symptom. It is only a symptom, but what is it a symptom of? What does that mean? What is it, what is the symptomatic of? And it's of a much greater illness. Otherwise, abstinence would be our entire program. If food were my problem, then the only solution would be stop eating. And then the problem would be solved, right? Um, So what is the greater illness then? If it's not just food, what is our great illness? Um, Well, it's the things that are inside me, not outside me you know, the causes and the conditions that keep me needing to soothe with the food. That's what I'm looking at here. You know, and in the AA 12 and 12, on the bottom of page 49, it says, once we have a complete willingness to take inventory and exert ourselves to do the job thoroughly, a wonderful light falls upon this foggy scene. So it's like, once we really make that decision that we're going to do this inventory and we're going to take it seriously, a lot of us actually feel a light inside. You know, as we persist, a brand new kind of confidence is born and the sense of relief at finally facing ourselves is indescribable. These are the first fruits of step four. So I love that because what it says is that we begin to feel uplifted from just the thought of exerting ourselves. Look how beautiful that is. I don't even have to make the exertion yet, but even thinking about exerting myself, I can actually start getting uplifted, you know? And it it says that the action of uncovering ourselves and facing ourselves gives us confidence and relief. And, and yet, so many people have been afraid of that fourth step, you know, as if it was a monster. And, um, you know, and I was afraid of uncovering myself and facing myself. You know, that's why so long I lived in denial and hiding from the truth, right? But here we find it's actually counterintuitive that when we face the things that are, you know, Imperfect and flawed in ourselves, we actually feel a little more confident. Um, you know, and now it says by now the newcomer has probably arrived at the following conclusions that his character defects representing instincts gone astray have been the primary cause of his drinking and his failure at life. You know, so many of us have had this huge sigh of relief of oh. This is why I've always used food, you know, and the text makes it clear that the drinking or eating did not cause the defects. And sometimes we hear that we hear, Oh, when I was in the food, I was really selfish. I actually, the book sort of says it's the other way it's when I'm really selfish that I'm in the food. It it's the reverse, you know, um, It's the defects cause the drinking, cause the eating. It's not necessarily the eating causes the defects, you know, which is why food plans and abstinence don't cure us, right? Because if it was food that caused all my problems, my solution would be get abstinent and everything would be great. I would live in peace and harmony, never to return to the food again. And yet any of us who have had countless vain attempts to try to manage and control our food have found that's not the truth, right? So what's blocking me is inside me. It's not external, you know? And sometimes we hear people say how horrible they were when they were in the food, as if the food created the selfishness the fearfulness or any of the other character defects, but we actually find, again, is that the food is what we used to suffer through the pain of going through this life being us. That's why I ate, because the discomfort of living as me kept me eating. Food was the substance I used to tolerate the pain of living and the problem is is that it also creates more pain right it's that double edged sword the thing i use to soothe the pain quickly becomes the thing that gives me even greater pain you know and and so it doesn't work for long the food didn't work for long and as the disease progresses the amount i needed and most people needed to get us just to zero to get us to blot out that you know the intolerable situation it takes more and more and more food just to get us to zero um and and because the disease progresses that will go on exponentially indefinitely it will always require more food to get me numb, you know? And then we reach a point where it stops working. And that's, that is a beautiful spot. That's the sweet spot. When the food no longer works. And here's the thing, you can reach that sweet spot and even still can't, you can't stop. And that was my experience too. That's when you reach the point where you want to stop and find you cannot stop right so all right now we're going to look at the big book again on page 64 it says here that resentment is the number one offender it destroys more alcoholics than anything else from it stem all forms of spiritual disease but we have not only mentally and physically been ill we've been spiritually sick. when the spiritual malady is overcome we straighten out mentally and physically So in dealing with resentments, we set them on paper. We write them down. We listed people, institutions, or principles, you know, big ideas with whom we were angry. And we asked ourselves, why were we angry? In most cases, it was found that our self-esteem, our pocketbooks, our ambitions, our personal relationships including sex, were hurt or threatened. So we were sore, we were burned up. So when we ask why we're angry, like, okay, why are we angry? It's not to assign blame. It's not so that we can point at another person. Well, oh yeah, I'm really resentful because, you know, my boss is an idiot, right? Or my my mother-in-law said X, Y, and Z. It's, you know, it's why I'm angry is not because she did like, or he did like, but why I'm angry is because something inside me was affected. And I am extraordinarily sensitive, right? We are, you know, they say that we are, Um, we're sensitive, we're, we're like babies, many of us. Um. You know, and so when it comes time that we're doing our inventory, it's important to remember whose inventory it is, right? If, I, if my entire inventory is on assigning blame to other people, I'm in a lot of trouble because it's not their inventory and there's nothing I'm gonna be able to do about it. So what I really need to do is examine me, myself, Um you know, the the first thing apparent, this is on page 66, was that this world and its people were often quite wrong, right? Yep. Really clear when you start putting together inventory, you're like, wow, people are really screwy and people are really wrong a lot. And But to conclude that others were wrong was as far as most of us ever got. The usual outcome was that people continue to wrong us and we stayed sore. So if my entire inventory stays stuck on the list of all the things that people did to me, I'm going to stay sore. I'm gonna have no peace. And sometimes it was remorse and then we were sore at ourselves, right? So we look at some things and we're like, oh gosh, I can't believe I did that. And now I'm gonna be upset with me. But the more we fought and tried to have our own way The worst matters, God. As in war, the victor only seemed to win. Our moments of triumph were short-lived. You know, and now it goes on. It is plain that a life which includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness. To the precise extent that we permit these, do we squander the hours that might have been worthwhile? You want to know how to waste your life right? Squandering your hours that might have been worthwhile. It's to hang on to deep resentments, right? That's how we waste our lives. But with the alcoholic whose hope is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience, this business of resentment is infinitely grave. See, We can't have a spiritual experience. I can't grow and have a spiritual awakening if I'm sore at other people, if I'm burning up energy foolishly being mad at other people. This business of resentment is infinitely great. It's actually deadly for us. It will kill me. We found that it is fatal. Oh my gosh, getting mad and staying mad will kill me, it is fatal. For when harboring such feelings, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit. Right? So if I'm harboring those feelings, if I have resentment and I make my resentment safe with me and keep them all cozy. And here's, here's how I would keep a resentment safe. I would hang on to it, unwilling to let it go and tell it to people who are gonna agree with me. That's how I keep them safe. And when I keep them safe, when I harbor them, I can't see God. I'm living in the shadows. And when I live in the shadows, when I live in that space where I can't see God and I can't feel God, what happens is the food calls my name, right? It says the insanity of alcohol returns and we drink again. So for me, I'm miserable enough. Food looks like a great idea. And once I eat, I might as well die. Because it says here, I'm with us to drink is to die. Now, some of us, you know, what does that look like? It means that we actually eat ourselves to death or we eat ourselves into dangerously high weights or we binge and purge ourselves into points where you know we are in danger of dying but for others who don't necessarily reach those critical levels it's as though you're half dead you're walking around in a body not experiencing life half living um might as well be dead right um you know so if we are to live we had to be free of anger. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. They may be the dubious luxury of normal men, but for alcoholics, these things are poison. So that's a phrase that I turn to a lot. You know, something that I've shared with you guys is this idea about being a distinct entity. And we often talk about being distinct in terms of food, right? That I cannot eat food certain foods and I can't engage in certain eating behaviors. But here's another way that I'm distinct. I don't have the luxury of walking around being angry. It's a luxury that I cannot afford. You know, and it for me it's a phrase that I turn to a lot because it reminds me that as an ex problem eater, I have a very unique set of directions. And this is different from the directions that normal people have. You know, I cannot walk around defending and supporting my side and my position. In fact, I have to actually divorce myself from that kind of thinking. So when I feel like I am invested in supporting and defending that I'm right. Don't you know, he did this to me, she said that to me. I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. That will kill me. That is a luxury I cannot afford. And I actually have to, it's like I have to divorce myself. I have to like have a divorce in my brain from my own thinking it's a different way of thinking it's very different from other people you know it's um i was taught you can be right or you can be happy you're probably not going to get to be both you know and i have a friend who's um i shared that with her once i said you know you can either be right or you can be happy now she's not one of us and she said wait a second being right makes me happy And I laughed and I thought that might be true for her, but that will kill me. That will not make me happy in the long run. That's a temporary pleasure. Just like the food was a temporary pleasure. It will take me out. You know, so I, you know, I remember also thinking at one time that getting recovery meant that I was going to get my voice so that I could defend my perspective and no longer would i be pushed around i had this idea you know that i was going to get stronger that i was going to be this stronger more assertive person and i was tired of being everybody's doormat and that's really what i was thinking in my brain um and that's not what i got that is not what the solution is for us it's stop perceiving yourself as a doormat being a doormat is a choice if you're laying down on the floor and inviting other people to step all over you that's very different from having to be strong and having to wipe your feet on other people there's two there's something huge in between that right we don't have to be the doormat but we're certainly not going to be wiping our feet on other people um you know and so today what i found out is that i have to seek peace and love at all costs and it often requires more discipline and more strength than putting the food down. There is nothing more for me that required greater strength, greater self-discipline than to stay out of the argument and fault finding was to make a decision that I'm not going there today that that person is entitled to say and do whatever they want, but I will stay with my set of ideals, and I will be strong in behaving the way that I think God would have me behave. Right, and that's not necessarily engaging in battle with anybody. You know, I've I have a spiritual sickness, which is a disease in uneasiness with reality as it was. People were not behaving according to my master plan, right? And that can still happen today. I got a master plan and you people, you know, all these people out there in the world are not following it. Um, Life was not unfolding precisely the way that I was certain it should be unfolding. And I was 100% right, right? I believed I was 100% right And I couldn't let go of that, like being right. You know, it was like a badge of honor. And I've come to know that I am in the greatest danger of the spiritual malady when that's the badge I wear. It's a deadly badge. When I'm right, being right does not give me peace and it doesn't give me happiness and it doesn't give me freedom, right? Being right does not mean that I'm gonna be happy. So we cross-examine ourselves. We look closely and critically at ourselves. That's the directions. And in the AA 12 and 12 on page 52, it says this. If my disturbance was seemingly caused by the behavior of others, why do I lack the ability to accept conditions I cannot change? That's a flaw in me. If these are things I cannot control, why am I unable to accept it then? And again, we cannot base our happiness on the actions of others you know if i'm basing my happiness on the actions of others i'm in greater bondage than i am to the food because now other people own me that my happiness is reliant on other people's behavior you know and again um you know further down the page it says this if i am unable to change the present state of affairs, am I willing to take the measures necessary to shape my life to conditions as they are? That requires discipline. What does that mean? Well, that my inventory will help me ultimately find a way to live happily and peacefully, even though life is not going according to my designs. It actually sets me free. That's a huge freedom. The inventory helps me grow to accept and to trust God's design. Not Melissa's design, but God's design. And oftentimes, as we're inventorying our lives, we come face to face with injustices. And when we look at our resentments, we are certain that we are right and they are wrong. And... That might very well be true. Some of us have, you know, suffered terrible injustices, have had real things, you know, and and it's not necessarily that it's my fault that they happened. That's not what the inventory says, right? Especially when people have things on their inventory, such as abuse, right? Or or real harm that other people have caused them. And and they're right. They are right, right? And others are wrong. So what do we say to this? Well, okay, great, you're right. Okay, you win. Now what, right? Now what? Now let's find a way to live happily, peacefully and productively in light of this. And quite simply, Other people's values and perspectives are none of my business, right? I let go of the business of having other people have to live in agreement with my values and my perspectives, even if my values and my perspectives are right, right? I still release them to live their own way. Okay, so how, how are we gonna do that? That's huge, right? How do we release that? Well, we're told we turned back to the list. Okay, we're gonna look at the list again for it held the key to the future. We were prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. We began to see that the world and its people really dominated us. In that state, the wrongdoing of others, fancied or real, had power to actually kill. How could we escape? We saw that these resentments must be mastered. But how, how do we master those resentments? We could not wish them away any more than the alcohol. I can't make myself not be angry at something that happened. I don't have that power to say, all right, well, that's it, I'm not gonna be angry anymore. That's called denial, right? And that's not healthy for us either, but we're gonna do it from another angle. This is our course, this is what we do. We realize that the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. You know, I was taught something really helpful, I'm sure it's not gonna be new to anybody, Somebody had shared with me many years ago, hurt people hurt people, right? And so I accept the fact that although I was hurt, the people that hurt me, the situations that hurt me were likely hurt themselves. They likely were spiritually sick themselves. And page 67 says, though we did not like their symptoms and the way these disturbed us, right? The way that they behaved are their symptoms. We don't like it. No one says you have to like it. But they like ourselves. We're sick too. We asked God to help us show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience that we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. And when a person offended, we said to ourselves, this is a sick man. How can I be helpful to him? God save me from being angry. Thy will be done. And so, you know, what do we do? We pray, you know, we're always reminded prayer is essential. We pray for people, right? Here's my process for me. I'm going to share my own process. I create prayers for everybody in every situation. Um, That's painful for me. I've got a prayer for them. And, um, And the other thing that I loved um, was years ago, actually, Janet, many years ago, when one of the first few times I ever spoke to her and we started becoming friends, she shared with me um, that she says, um, she rewords that prayer, you know, the sick man's prayer, it's being spiritually developing rather than sick. And for me, that really, that opened up something very big inside me because, um, i understand what it means to be developing you know and and part of that is my own background my my career right i'm a teacher so i i understand that people go through developmental um s- developmental stages and and it helps me to think about the people who hurt me as though they're spiritual children right that almost like toddlers and i envision the people who hurt me as though they were children. And sometimes I try to, in my prayer light, I close my eyes and I try to picture what might they have looked like as a little kid? What might have occurred to them that caused them to be the way that they are? And you know what, maybe I'm making it up. Maybe it's my imagination. Maybe none of that's true, but it helps me look at them from a much softer angle. And it actually helps me, you know? And so um, she's about a year or two ago, I was having a lot of problems with my boss, right? Who I felt was mean to me. She wasn't nice to me. She wasn't warm to me. She didn't get the memo that she's supposed to be real sweet to me because um, you should be nice to me. I'm nice to you, be nice to me. That's my value. That's my judgment. And she kind of comes to the table with a different set of values. I think, I think maybe along her journey, it was, you know, um, eat or get eaten. I think that was the lesson she learned that she had to be a lot stronger and a lot tougher. And I think she saw my kindness as weakness. And so she made a point, I felt, of always being mean to me. And it hurt me. I felt like terribly hurt and bothered by it. Boy, she was all over my 10 steps because don't you know, she's like not being nice to me. She doesn't even say hello to me and you know, blah, blah, blah. I had this whole story. And I started praying for her with intensity. On my, you know, one time she really yelled at me. She made me feel horrible. And I realized I better do a lot of praying for this woman because I can't stand, I can't stand it anymore. My first reaction was just like that doormat thing. Well, I'm not going to be her doormat. Guess what? I'm not going to say hi back to her. I'm going to be just like that. And what happened for me is God gave me a set of ideals. And when I don't live in agreement with them, I feel disgusting. And so it's not in my nature to, to give somebody else a cold shoulder. It didn't feel right. It felt actually like I was giving her more power because now I'm behaving just like her, and I don't like it. So I did a lot of prayer. I prayed a lot. And what came to me really clearly was, she was a little girl one time, and somewhere along the way, she learned she had to be tough. She had to be mean. Maybe the people in her life didn't treat her with kindness and compassion maybe she learned something different than I learned and I really started praying for her and then I started picturing what she must have looked like as a little girl and funny enough there was a little girl in my class who I almost started thinking maybe she looked like her and when I prayed I thought about that child I thought you know I don't have to I don't have to be angry at her her anymore. You know, and when my reaction to her changed, it all changed. It all changed. Sometimes she is so incredibly nice to me today. Awesome. I'm, you know, great. And sometimes she's not awesome. It's okay. Like I'm not owned by it. I, I have freedom from that today. You know, I, um, I think about it like this. I wouldn't be angry at a child, right? Not somebody who didn't know any better. And this way of looking at people invites a very loving and tolerant stance, which for me is part of how I let go of my resentment. You know, I have a very specific code as a recovered woman. We all do actually as recovered individuals. We're told what our code is. It's called love and tolerance. That's our code. That's the new one we got. You know, it's not fair and unfair. It's not right and wrong. It's not justice versus injustice. It's love and tolerance. That's the code I got. And so love for them. Yes, even love for that boss. Yes, even love for the people that may have wronged me in the past. doesn't mean that I have to have relationships with all those people, but I do have to love them. I have to find a spirit of love for them. They're a child of God, just like me right? Just as valuable, just as much a right to live on this planet as me. Um, and then I ask for tolerance, thicker skin. You know what? What is it about me that 55 years old, that I get to tears because a grown-up, you know, another grown-up doesn't seem to be nice back to me. Like that's something in me that needs improvement, that needs work on. Because extreme self, extreme sensitivity is self-centeredness. It's the, it's it's experiencing the whole world as though it's happening to me. Maybe she just woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Maybe I remind her of somebody, but it's not for me to take it so personal. So I pray for tolerance, which means a thicker skin, so that I'm not so damn sensitive to every single thing. You know, I ask God to change me so that I can face life successfully. And we avoid fighting because we cannot win. I cannot win. Because the price I pay and the imagined victory is too high. I don't get satisfaction. I get burned up. And either I'm going to get flooded. When I get burned up, I'm either going to get flooded with moral Superiority, walking around thinking I'm superior to that person or self-pity. Like, oh, she's not nice to me and everybody wants to be nice to me. And, you know, and both of which means that I'm disconnected from other people. Both of those. If I'm feeling superior, I'm not connected. And if I'm feeling like a victim, I'm not connected. And when I'm cut off and alone, what do I run to? The arms of food. Buddha's always been the solace, the great comfort. Now we're told, now what about fear, right? Let's look at fear. Fear, this short word somehow touches about every aspect of our lives. It's an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. Sometimes we think fear ought to be classed with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. Perhaps there's a better way. We think so. for we are now on a different basis, the basis of trusting and relying upon God. We trust infinite God rather than our finite selves. We are in the world to play the role he assigns just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him. Does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? We have a formula. That's a formula that we just read. That no matter what's happening in my life, if I do what I think God would have me do, remember, he's assigning the role. So in each situation, I ask myself, what do I think God would have me do? And if I'm not sure, for me, it almost always goes to the most loving thing I can do in a situation. If I am stuck between two options, I usually would believe that erring on the side of what's loving is more inclined to be what God would have me do, right? So if I do what I think God would have me do and humbly rely on him, meaning I'll put the outcome in his hands. I'll do in the moment what I think he should do, but I'll trust him with the, with the greater picture, the unfolding of it. I have serenity even in bad situations. I can feel calm because I'm doing what I believe God would have me do. And I'm trusting him with the future. So we can overcome our fear as we learn to trust God. In step three, we decided that we had a new employer. And our third step reminds us that if we stay close to God and perform his work well, then our needs will be met. Not our wishes. Not our desires, but our needs, a little bit different. You know, and so for me, the fear, this thing about fear, um, what really brought me into OA uh, for this last, right? This last time when I stayed and came and decided that I was going to go to any length. What happened for me was I was suffering panic attacks, horrible horrible panic attacks and they turned into the greatest gift because i was walking around saying i'm entitled to be afraid don't you know what happened to me cuz i did i had listen lots of us come here i am not unique um lots of us come here with having a set of painful experiences and my response to my painful experiences was i'm afraid i'm afraid that bad things are going to continue to happen to me or that things will never get better for me and and i remember thinking if you had what happened to me happen to you you'd be afraid to do right i'm entitled to be afraid and you know but as i worked these steps i started to hear this other voice and You know, and this is where God begins to make conscious contact. And what I heard was, um, you're entitled to more, right? When I said I'm entitled to be afraid, what I heard was, mm, you're entitled to better than that. And and you're entitled to freedom, you know? And how do we get free? Trust and reliance on God, on the divine plan. You know, we're not promised pain-free existences we're humans. We will, by our very finite existence, experience deep loss. Because we're placed in this world with other humans who are also finite. And we're gonna we're gonna suffer losses. It's part of the human experience. But I trust that I will get what I need. And how do I trust? Dependence on God allows me to trust. When I depend upon God, I feel greater trust. Page 68, we never apologize to anyone for depending upon our creator. We can laugh at those who think spirituality the way of weakness. I absolutely never apologize for relying on God, never. In fact, I'm here to show others how amazing his power is Right. That's, that's my purpose. That's what I'm supposed, that's the message we carry that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences and that God's power is incredible is infinite. And so if I were apologetic for relying on God, if I were embarrassed and ashamed about it, um, it would be horribly dishonest to pretend that God had nothing to do with my miracles. Right, that's dishonest. Paradoxically, reliance on God is the way of strength. It's the verdict of the ages that faith means courage. And when we have faith, it means that we have courage. All men of faith have courage. They trust their God. Never apologize for God. Instead, we let him demonstrate through us what he can do. We ask him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us be. And at once we commence to outgrow fear. So I don't have to be afraid anymore of making a mistake. That used to be my big fear. What if I make a mistake? What if I, what if I'm, what if I'm not hearing what God would have me be? What if I'm just hearing me and I think it's gone and I make a mistake? Well, you know what? I can let go of regrets. I like to think that God is powerful enough that he can work around my mistakes. That if I make a mistake, and it's not really his guidance that I got, but it was my self-will that ran the show, God's going to redirect me if I allow him, right? He can work around my mistakes. And if I have regrets, step nine will help me remedy them. I love this idea of letting God use me to show me what he can do. I think that's incredible. Isn't that incredible? That this employer uses us to show others what he can do, which is why it's important that when we share our stories, we are clear who the real hero is. You know, the next part is going to talk about sex and that yep, many of us need an overhauling here. And um, and that we're gonna, you know, above all, we try to be sensible in this question and it's easy to get way off track. And we find lots of human opinions. They run from extremes, right? Absurd extremes. And what do we wanna do? Stay out of the controversy. <laughs> and I would say, I try to stay out of the controversy in all things. That's good direction for someone like me. You know, further down, it says that we ask God to mold our ideals and help us to live up to them and i can tell you my experience is that when my ideals are being molded there's a certain pressure i can feel it's like it's like um it's like i outgrow something and i can feel the constriction of being molded of being changed of being formed you know, it's like clay being shaped and God is the potter and we're the clay, right? We let God change us and and shape us. Page 70 says, if sex is very troublesome, we throw ourselves the harder into helping others. We think of their needs and work for them. And this takes us out of ourselves. And I just want to say, you know, I'm going to end, you know, pretty much with this is that I find it really comforting that My solution, our solution is the same for all problems. I seek God's direction and I help others, right? Whether it's sex, whether it's fear, whether it's resentment, it's almost always the same formula. I ask God to direct me and then I get busy trying to be helpful for other people. And um, with that, I will pass. Hold on, that. let me just set the recording.